Spencer. And I'm Andrew, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today we'll be speaking with Catherine Garcia, who is currently running for mayor of New York City. Previously, Catherine was the commissioner of the city's Department of Sanitation, serving for nearly eight years, and before that was the chief operating officer of the Department of Environmental Protection. In a moment where New York City is in a precarious position, facing multiple challenges, Catherine has the tactical experience, institutional knowledge, and rigor required to lead the city forward. Very excited to speak with her today. Let's get her on the line. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. So uh, just to jump right into it, you've never run for elected office before. Your entire career, you've been head down, running city agencies, managing multiple crises for New York um, over the years. And instead of politicking at events, developing donor support, you've been doing the work. Why did you decide to run for mayor in this election, in this moment? And this city is facing some really tough challenges. And I've seen firsthand how important it is who is sitting in that chair, being decisive or not being decisive, being in the details on the implications of budget decisions. So it is why I got in and why I thought at this particular moment, my skill set was uniquely needed in the city of New York. Well, you've been known to say you may not know my name, but you know my work. I have said that a few times. <laughs> yeah, so, so let's get into some of that straight away. Beginning with Hurricane Sandy, what was your job at the time and how did you respond to that situation? Uh, so at the time, I was the chief operating officer for the water utility, which meant my responsibilities spanned from the watershed upstate to the Rockaway Wastewater Treatment Plant and all the other 13 treatment plants in the city and all the pipes in between. During Hurricane Sandy, I was the incident commander for the department, making sure we were moving things around, figuring out how we were going to staff things and really coordinating with all of the other incredibly talented people at the agency. Mm. And, you know, you were also experiencing whatever personal trauma from it yourself. You had a family, you had a place to live that was under a crisis. What was going on with you personally and how did you manage that, you know, long hours, insane commitment to to focus on the job? When you, the city is confronting something of the magnitude of a hurricane, Sandy, you just got to head down and put the work in. Uh, so I did actually stay overnight at headquarters in those early days, uh, you don't actually have to stay overnight all the time, but there are certain times where it is required. And, you know, I had, well, I guess they were relatively small, medium-sized children at the time. You know, they and their father were sort of hunkered down at home. And you were trying to save the city situation. And how did you sort of find ways to innovate in, in terms of what to do next, in terms of accessing the private sector, figuring things out, because as we saw, it was too big for the city in many ways. So it was about being able to have relationships, particularly with people in the construction industry. And many of the staff who have those day-to-day -day relationships were coordinating on bringing in submersible pumps mm. ahead of the storm, making sure we had the sandbags ready ahead of the storm, 
And so we were able to really jump on that quickly. I did get a phone call from the Nassau County executive saying, I hear you have submersible pumps. I'm sending the sheriff to get them. And I was like, okay, we're done. So, uh, but we ended up relying on military personnel to help bring in generators, relying on our own staff from upstate to bring them downstate uh, to make this work. It was an all hands on deck achievement for the department to be able to come back. But then it was also, you get things stable, you're going to have a longer period of recovery and making sure that you put people on the recovery who are strong, but that you don't lose sight of your longer term goals. Before we move on, I just, I just want to point out that, you know, it comes down to people. We think of these as kind of positions and people in power that talk to each other so nicely. But at the end of the day, it's relationships that are about individuals. And have you noticed that the way you've approached your job over the years has developed relationships of trust that you've been able to call on in moments of crisis? So it is about not only relationships of trust, but even understanding who you're going to call. Who is that person? who's got that special thing. And even sometimes it, it can seem so small, but during food, when we were doing the food delivery program, mm-hmm. um, we're just standing it up and we're creating, we ended up making it electronic, but initially to get it off the ground, paper routing sheets. Yeah, you know, the first night they're literally hand cutting them to hand to drivers. And then it's like, oh, the police department has perforated paper. <laughs> You know, somehow perforated paper can become important. And like one of the members of the staff, I was like, we need to figure this out. And they were like, I know that they have perforated paper. And that is how we were able to get that done. But it it is the small and the not so small, but being able to call and ask for help. Say, I need this skill set. Which begs the question of how could you run the city if you haven't worked through the agencies? You know, it's like, it seems inconceivable. It, it is a strange way that we hire for the role of mayor, uh, <laughs> that this is the process we choose as our interview process, mm. and that we tend to select people who have been in politics and not delivering services to New Yorkers, and that is the, the entire job of being mayor. Mm. Well, I wanted to mention your work as the city's sanitation commissioner. And I think, you know, if ever there were a role that were about cleaning things up, that would definitely be it. You oversaw an agency of more than 10,000. You brought about these large, both literally and figuratively sweeping changes to the department. What were some of those? Could you talk about some of the work you did there and, and the things that have stuck with you the most in terms of what you'd like to achieve as mayor? It has been a real transformative experience for the Department of Sanitation over the last few years. Not only what we were doing on the environmental front, banning styrofoam, banning plastic bags, rolling out the largest food scrap collection program in the country, Mm. being able to put together an electronics collection program for city residents. Uh, But it was also about transforming how did we plow snow? How are we going to reroute trucks and bringing technology to the department? Because it was literally like a logbook for a logbook. And they had these pens with the green, the red, the blue and the black ink so that they could almost do hieroglyphics. Mm. Like If you're writing about snow, you only write in red. And that is all now computerized. Uh, 
there was literally a plastic board where you'd put names in every day with the truck. Uh, and that is now all electronic and can mm. be moved around and reset. Actually, if I still had access, I could do it from here mm. in my living room. And it made us much more agile during COVID. And even something simple, giving turn-by-turn directions for routing during snow to the truck for the sanitation worker. Mm. So that they're not actually looking at a piece of paper in the middle of a blizzard and trying to drive. Of course, a lot of this work, and I do want to get into the climate crisis in a little bit with this conversation, but sanitation certainly connects to environment and climate. Could you talk about the work you did in that capacity while in that role? Absolutely. So it was about expanding programs uh, for New Yorkers. It was about making sure we had curbside collection of food waste, because that's a third Mm. of our waste. It's about a million tons a year. It was also pushing through on increasing the percentage of our paper and our metal, glass, and plastic that are recyclable. It's also about a third. And usually we're getting, I think we're getting about a little bit over 20, 22%. Some portions of the city do far better than others. But taking on pieces of uh, particularly the plastics industry where you can't really recycle it. Mm. It's not really working. And getting rid of those products uh, but we also had some fun in uh, the department. We had a food waste fair, mm-hmm. uh, two of them, where chefs would create basically dishes out of things that would normally have gotten thrown away. Some people have been making beer out of bread because there's a tremendous amount of bread either purchased or baked for restaurants mm. that goes to waste at the end of the night. But we also had a fashion show with Heron Preston to talk about textile waste mm-hmm. and being able to do some of the collections of textile waste and work with housing works and Goodwill to support programs where we put a bin in your apartment building and you could just put your clothes in there. We'd take them away and make it so that they were available for uh, supporting the charitable organizations. There are lots of interesting partnerships in this space. And you have to be thinking creatively to engage New Yorkers. Yeah. I want to also mention that when COVID hit, Mayor de Blasio brought you in to oversee this emergency food program you were referencing earlier. What did this program entail? What were some of the results of this program and and your work in this capacity? So I got a phone call on a Friday in late March of last year when things were clearly going very, very downhill, very, very fast. And the charge was, please make sure no one goes hungry. Mm. And it was standing up a team and standing up technology to deliver what ended up being about a million meals a day to also distribute more than 500,000 a day from our school system. And that included using taxi drivers for the delivery. And that included having the park's recreational facilities be used as distribution hubs, working closely with our partners at emergency management, engaging the large catering halls to create the food for delivery, bringing in the school food workers in the cafeterias to prepare food for people to pick up. And at the same time, also putting financial resources and food resources into the food pantry Mm. system and 
at the end, when right when I before I left, it was putting in place a contract where they more or less had an account, the food pantries that they could get deliveries off of. And I think more than seven million pounds of fresh fruits and vegetables were flowing after I left based off of the work that we had done to set that up. Extraordinary. And somewhere between March and March and September, you decided to resign. I did. And uh, famously in a letter, uh, you described why. I'd like you to talk to us a bit about what caused that decision. And if you were thinking about at that moment, what it would look like if you had that job as mayor. So I resigned at the very beginning of September. There had been a series of sort of decisions that were getting made, particularly around budget and budget cuts that I disagreed with uh, and was very concerned about. You know, working in the climate space, you got to have a stick-to-itness about it. You know, you you probably don't get to cut that ribbon. Uh, you have to believe that you are setting the foundation for the future. Uh, in addition, I knew that in the middle of a pandemic, having the city get filthy was going to be really bad. And it happened immediately. The first weekend, it happened absolutely immediately. And the plans going up, like, you know, I have two little nieces in, in public school. The plans for opening up the schools were just disastrous. You know, my sister's a school teacher. It was, if I had this job, this would not be what I was doing. If I had the job of mayor, mm -hmm. we would be going in a completely different direction. And then I decided to, to roll out my campaign in December. Amazing. I think it was super clear to New Yorkers that we were going nowhere good very, very fast. And, you know, our current reality now is we've lost, you know, more than 30,000 lives, mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of jobs to COVID. It's like we're in triage. We're on the gurney in the ER and there are a million issues, right? We've like been through a car accident. So what's at the top of your list? as like the ER attendant looking at this triage? Hopefully not vaccinations. Hopefully we have gotten shots into arms by the time we get to January. We have to get this economy back up and running. We know that we have to have in place real trauma support, particularly for our kids, and that Everything impacts everything else. Public health is not separate from employment. It's not separate from housing. It's not separate from food access. You have to bring in the team so we get our economy back up and running and we are doing the pieces to support that, which means we've got to feel safe in our communities. Uh, we've got to get kids back in school and we got to keep the streets clean. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things you're talking about is, is safety, right? And shootings have nearly doubled from two years ago there's random violence on the rise. I mean, if anyone has Citizen App, it's like popping off more and more and more every day. How do you plan to support the police here while at the same time kind of evolving our policies about policing in this city? I bring to the table what no other candidate brings, having managed a very large, very male, uh, uniformed organization. Police officers want the public, they're people, they want the public to think they're doing a good job. And that is going to mean that we have to do some transformational reform to get trust from communities. And so that everyone does feel like police are their guardians. Uh, leading in this type of environment is about being tough, but fair. And that is what I have done. 
Do you think that there are some core things that need to happen? Like, does it need to be harder to become a policeman? I think there needs to be a lot more training. You look around the world and I think Germany trained our officers for three years. I'm not saying we would yeah. go that long, but having more training, having officers be older, you know, 25 is just a different age than 21. Mm-hmm. Having them live in the city, putting in training for our frontline supervision, promoting people who are doing the right thing, having neighborhood cops really have the time to do the neighborhood stuff and not just respond to 911 calls, and then clear and consistent discipline that is fair to police officers and that is trusted by the public, uh, that it is moving quickly and expeditiously, and that respect is happening not just about the egregious acts of violence that we've seen from officers across the country, but also just the day-to-day respect that we need to have for one another. And mental health partnership. Yeah, mental health professionals have to be embedded with our officers. So you were mentioning public health earlier, and I was wondering if you could define how you think about public health for us and, and also how you hope to make the city more healthy, livable, equitable, if you were to become mayor. Yeah, so we do need to have a livable city. It's, it is one of those things that will make a big difference in terms of how we come back and whether or not we are getting people to stay here, mm-hmm. to move here and to visit here. And public health is really much broader than just what we think of as health care. We do need to make sure that people have access to insurance and that we are leveraging New York City Cares and Metro Health to get people the insurance. But it's also about access to the actual care mm-hmm. and improving coordination between our public and private health care systems or even within our, our public health care system between the, the hospitals that make up that network and ensuring that we have the infrastructure in historically underserved neighborhoods. I mean, there's some things that are a little bit on the more wonky side around Medicaid reimbursement for our safety net hospitals. And you think about the Rockaways, there is one hospital in the Rockaways, St. John's, and the state has been pushing them to become just a 15-bed emergency room. Rather than having a full-service hospital on the peninsula, you're not close to another hospital Hmm. when you're in the Rockaways. You also have to close the maternal mortality gap. You are eight times more likely to die in childbirth if you are a black woman than a white woman. Having midwifery and doulas available, but it's also about the overall health care for women. Do you have access to healthy food? Are you getting care for chronic underlying illnesses? What we all learned is that, you know, the chronic underlying illness that was running rampant Mm. made you super vulnerable to COVID. Uh, And now that we've learned that, we have to fix it. Mm. On the climate front, You've described the want to create the most climate forward city on earth. And I'm wondering, what does that actually look like in your mind? So there are a couple of really key pieces to my climate proposal. But first is how through the lens do I view all the other policies, Mm. housing, NYCHA, transportation. You have to have climate centered in those conversations. 
It's about having a renewable Rikers with wind and solar and batteries and compost facilities. It's about putting a green roof on every school, uh, doing 150 million square feet of new green space and rethinking the public realm so that we have a stronger tree canopy, that we have rain gardens to absorb stormwater and flooding, which also not only for the long term, but because it will clean our air now, will make us healthier now, electrifying our fleets, uh, getting local law 97 and decarbonizing our economy right as we move forward, making the investments in bringing down renewables from upstate and from Canada. You got to love some solar and some hydro. But Mm -hmm. also, this is a really big opportunity for new jobs in the city of New York. Mm -hmm. And we need to start training people for offshore wind right now if they're going to be the ones getting the jobs when it comes in a year or two. Mm. Given your work around Sandy, I'm wondering how are you thinking about flooding, the rising risk of floods to the city, and how do you think innovation and design, something like you know Biggs Dry Line, could be harnessed to protect neighborhoods? So there are a couple of pieces. There are places where we should do hard infrastructure. Uh, there are also places where we should be using a lot more green infrastructure and softening our shorelines particularly our dune systems in some of our forward-facing areas to attenuate wave activity, but also making it so our built environment can withstand a storm surge and drain appropriately without mass catastrophe. You know, at Red Hook, they are creating what are called lily pots or pads. I can't remember exactly which one it was, but it allows the water to sort of move around in certain areas, but protects the overall building and its electrical supply. Uh, When you think about it, Battery Park City did not go dark during Hurricane Sandy Mm -hmm. because their mechanicals were not in the basement. Ensuring that where the built environment is prepared to withstand it is very important. But creating pathways for water to find its own way and protect us is also something we need to be to be working on. Uh, And also, it's not just the South Shore. If the tides had been 12 hours different, it would have been the Bronx and Northern Queens we were talking about. Mm -hmm. There are 520 miles of coastline in this city. We have to have climate districts. So we are working with communities to make sure that they understand what the options are and how we are going to protect them. But there's more than just storm surge in the challenge of climate. There is high heat as well as, you know, very significant rainfall. Mm. Hurricane Harvey wasn't a wind or a storm surge for Houston. It was 54 inches of rain in like a two-day period, which is more rain than we in New York City get in a year. Uh, And it just didn't go anywhere. It couldn't get out. Having something that we are thinking about that and how we are going to deal with that, whether or not it's rain gardens, uh, blue belts on Staten Island that should be expanded into places like Queens, Uh, We have to have all of those options on the table. But there are opportunities also for geothermal at NYCHA. Yeah. You know, that's heat and air condition. You know, we have this huge income disparity, high barrier of entry for cost of living. How do we make sure artists have a chance to actually make work here? And connected to that, how do landlords sort of have a role in helping that happen? Artists are broadly spoken. So not just those who make physical art, but also the dancers, the musicians, 
who come here to perform and to be part of the the scene, so to speak, of what makes New York so interesting. I believe it has to be at the front of what we are doing to bring us back. It's what differentiates us from every other city. There are going to be opportunities where there's space and working with landlords and real estate uh, to activate those spaces, whether or not that's retail front spaces or even in office towers and thinking about how do we actually maybe create live workspaces for artists so that they can be creative and help activate those neighborhoods in a way that they haven't been Mm -hmm. and have been really hurt by COVID. Uh, It should open up opportunities and bringing people to the table and getting that done is what I want to do because I know how hard it's been, like basically no employment for 14 months and still it's a little tenuous about what is happening even with the reopenings. And supporting those, those artists is what the city should be doing. Right. And I mean, some streets, you know, in Soho look like 1970s Soho. There's no storefronts. They're knocked out. The difference is artists can't move in and utilize them as they always had. So is there some sort of plan about uh, incentivizing landlords to activate those storefronts or pay a penalty if not? Yeah, I I have been supportive of a commercial tax on vacancy. Uh, If you are not going to rent that, you are doing a disservice to your neighborhood. Uh, I want people in those. Not only in Chelsea, I'd say another area is 42nd Street. Mm. All along 42nd Street, there's nothing in most of those storefronts these days. Having artists or galleries or something going on that is productive and vibrant is really important. Mm. So your identity is distinctly New York. You were adopted as a baby by a teacher and a labor negotiator. You grew up in Park Slope. The home you grew up in, you were one of five multiracial kids in this household. How did that experience help shape who you are today, professionally, I guess, and personally? And does this play out in your mayoral campaign? And if so, in in what ways? So my family, which is sometimes incredibly complicated to describe, (laughs) uh, didn't feel, I'll tell you that it felt very normal growing up in it, Mm -hmm. that you should have siblings of different races, that you should be the first child, but then you're the second child because they adopt somebody older than you are. Because <laughs> uh, we were still siblings. We did mm. what siblings do. It's like, did you steal my jeans? Did you, uh, <laughs> what happened to the last piece of cake? But I also knew that we were often treated differently. I feel like I began to see that in my late childhood, that mm. people perceived Uh, me is not a threat and often perceived my brother as a threat once he was no longer little Mm. because now he's six feet tall. And I mean, he's complete mush, but (laughs) he was, I could tell that by body language, not that anyone ever said anything. uh, It's much more insidious than that, Mm. uh, that they perceived him very differently than they perceived me. But what happened at our dinner table was a lot of conversation about you know, what is your life's mission? Mm. I'm not sure they use the word mission, but that you should have work that was fulfilling and gave back to the people in your community. And they had been organizers and activists before they got those steady jobs as a teacher and a labor negotiator, really like working with the gangs and the Chelsea projects. 
And so they had already committed their life's work to really be in public service. And that was held up as the highest calling. Mm. So you've now received the endorsements of both the New York Times and the New York Daily News. What do these mean to you as a lifelong New Yorker? Well, I have to tell you that I have not bought a physical paper in a very long time. <laughs> we won't tell the Daily News. Well, I hadn't bought the Times. Like, I mean, they're both, I have them on my phone. Yeah. But I did go out and get the physical papers on Sunday, uh, which is quite strange to have mm. your picture on the front page or on the back page of each respective paper. Um, so I am absolutely thrilled. But it also seemed that they really got who I am and what I want to do and think that this election is incredibly important and having someone who understands the job Mm. is a prerequisite and that has a real vision for changing the lives of New Yorkers. Mm. I think it's worth noting that if elected, you would be the city's first female mayor. And also the city has never promoted a bureaucrat from within the city government. So that would be another first. From this perspective, what would it mean for you to hold this top job in City Hall? Being the first woman, and by the way, it's about time. It's only been 400 years uh, (laughs) to be able to break that glass ceiling and bring my life experience to the job of running large organizations, many of them primarily male, uh, but also having been like a working mom Mm. and the policies that we create around how do we support women? You know, when they said the hybrid school system, I was like, how is anyone going to go to work? You have no predictability. It's, and we know from the data that one in four women step back. The backup plan to the backup plan was women. When we don't center women in the conversation and presume that they are just going to take care of it, we get left out. And I bring that to the table, but with, you know, a little bit of funness to go with it. Yeah, New York City needs a cool mom that gets things done. Needs a cool mom. (laughs) Before we let you go, one last question, which is, you know, as we're emerging out of this really horrific period, um, and the pandemic and just everything that's been so precarious in the last year, what is kind of the greatest hope that you have for New York? My greatest hope is, first of all, we get our mojo back, but that when you are a citizen of the city of New York, that you really feel that you can do anything that you want, that you have opportunity across the board to open a business, uh, to get the best job, to be able to create the most amazing art, to be the architect that wins every award. Who knew that as sanitation commissioner, we did make the cover of Architectural Digest with a salt shed. Mm -hmm. You just never know where you're going to have brilliance. And it's because you need to, New York City has so much talent. And when all of that talent is offered this opportunity, great things happen. Mm. So I really want to see that. And just climate change is an existential crisis. We have to be a greener city. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We're cheering for you from the sidelines. Uh, the Out of Distance podcast definitely is a huge proponent of you taking that job in January. So we're looking forward to June. And uh, thanks so much for joining us today. 
Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At a Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.